understand the day of the Lord is the end time event when God brings human history as we know it to a conclusion and then ushers in his kingdom. And so it has much to say about judgment, but it also has something to say about blessing. And we don't want to miss that and try to keep that in balance. Our study of Isaiah brings us now to chapters 34 and 35. They certainly go together. They could really be one chapter because there really is no real break between them. We've said that the first main division of the book of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39. And it serves primarily as a picture of judgment that is so often spoken in the Old Testament in general. Most of these chapters, in fact, you have to go back to about chapter 8 to get much narrative. Since chapter 8, it's been all oracles. Now, what is an oracle? It's a prophetic utterance. It's any kind of prophetic utterance, but in this case, prophetic utterances of judgment primarily, mixed in with some offers of grace, and we're always thankful for that. But uh, since we've been working our way through all these chapters, since chapter 8, of these oracle messages that are written down for us. So you've got to realize God gave these messages, impressed them upon Isaiah. Exactly how he did that is not always explained. Could be through dreams or visions. It could be audible voice. It could be impressions that he heard, you know, uh, But God gave him these messages, and then he would open his mouth and speak the very word of God. So these were heard audibly, but then eventually written down for us and recorded in this book. Now, when we come to chapters 34 and 35, if you look in your Bible, it may be evident. Beginning in chapter 36, at least in my Bible, the way it's printed, uh, you notice a change in the way the, uh, the words are presented on the page from a poetic style to what we would call narrative. So is your Bible like that? Now, you, you might be just looking at straight text, and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about. But uh, a lot of Bibles you know, are, are printed this way. So we've seen this poetic style for all these chapters, from chapter 8 now all the way up, And we, you know, today, chapters 34 and 35, yes, they're oracles. But next time, we're going to look at narrative. Now, does that mean anything to anybody? Probably not. I don't know. I'm sure it does. But uh, we might be tempted to give a sigh of relief after today's sermon and say, oh, wow, you know, we made it through all those oracles. Yeah. And chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 is going to be narrative. It's going to sound a lot like 2 Kings 18, because 2 Kings 18 is almost word for word put in there. And it's going to be the events finishing off the story about the Assyrians and Hezekiah's prayer, and then preparing for the Babylonian captivity. But I I really need to tell you something, that when we get to chapter 40, we're back to oracles again. (laughs) We're back to these poetic utterances that are messages that are, okay, interpretive hoops you have to keep jumping through and and trying to figure them out. Now, I'm speaking to you right now on how to read the Bible, okay? You follow that? 
I'm talking to you about how to read your Bible. And so as you open your Bible, wherever you happen to be, you need to recognize the style of writing, whether it's narrative. Okay, what's narrative? It's telling a story. It's relating history. It's, you know, when you, if you would read a, a biography of someone, a lot of it would be narrative telling this event happened, then that event happened, he said, she said, and so on. Well, poetry is not like that. And I think we know, you know, poetry in English, we have a lot of uh, rhyme and rhythm and different things that are used to uh, present it. In Hebrew poetry, it's mainly repetition and phrases and colorful language and sometimes kind of leaves you hanging exactly, what is that saying again? And you have to really dig into it. The Bible also includes parables and figures of speech. There are parts that have futuristic and symbolic, what we call apocalyptic. Okay? And that especially is the, nearly the whole book of Revelation. First couple chapters of Revelation have letters, but then you begin with chapter 4 on. It's apocalyptic in the sense that there's a lot of symbols, there's a lot of visions, and so it's a different way to interpret. Think about the New Testament for a moment. The Gospel and Acts, what would that be? What kind of language usually? What kind of style of writing? Narrative mostly, with some parables and figures of speech, um, you know, thrown in there. But, so, you know, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, there's a lot of narrative, there's a lot of storytelling, there's a lot of uh, history involved. Well, then you get to Romans. What's that? It's not narrative. What is it? They're letters, right? It's, there's an author writing to an audience or an individual. And so you go from Romans all the way to Jude, and it's epistles. We could call it epistolary. You could you know, impress your friends with that word, maybe. I don't know. But it's, it's just about writing letters. And Paul writing to the Romans, Paul writing to the Corinthians. It's in letter form, and so you have to interpret it that way. And then, of course, you get to the book of Revelation, as we just mentioned, primarily apocalyptic. So I'm trying to help you as we go through Isaiah, as we read this, we've got to understand what kind of style of writing is this. Next week, Lord willing, narrative. Wow, that'll be so different. I, are you excited about that? I, I can tell you are. So let's go back now and look at Isaiah chapters 34 and 35. And the title of today's message is The Regathering. Now I want to explain a couple things here because um, I don't know how that grabs you. The regathering. The regathering of what? Well, we're talking about the regathering of Israel on earth. This text in chapter 34 and 35, they just go hand in hand, but they're two parts. They're going to be the two parts of my outline. They describe what God will do with Israel and all Jewish people who are living on the earth when Jesus returns for his church. Now the part about the church is not here. Remember, the church is one of those mysteries of the New Testament that was hidden away in the old. There's a lot of things that are hidden in the old that aren't revealed until the new. But this is totally from the Jewish perspective. And so we look at Isaiah and we see 
how the Lord loves all people, and he calls all people groups to himself. And that's been kind of an amazing thing, don't you think? I mean, in the Jewish mind, they think salvation is only for them, and that's it. That's how the Jewish people thought all through the Old Testament. We know who God is, and the Gentiles are all pagans. And basically the attitude was, let them go to hell. That was the Jewish mind in most cases. But that wasn't God's mind. And we've seen in Isaiah that God loves all the people groups, and he offers salvation to all of them. And in fact, he's going to elevate them to the status of Israel as his people at some point. We also know, however, that only a minority of people in every people group hear God's offer of salvation through the gospel, although some of every nation and language will be saved. In contrast, those to those who believe the good news, the majority of people throughout history, and this to me is so mind-boggling, the majority of people throughout history have not believed. Why? You realize at the time of Noah's flood, there could have been as many people on earth as there is now? Do you realize there could have been more than that? Because of their lifespans, because of the layout of the land in the original creation, because of the climate and the atmosphere and all the things that changed because of Noah's flood, it just boggles my mind to think, even today, do you realize we're in a minority? Believers in Jesus are a small minority. Of one out of six, maybe one out of even seven people in the world even claim Jesus as their Savior. You're in a minority. And I, I trust you, you allow that to sink into your mind and not be surprised when the world acts like they do. Now, at the end of the era that we're in right now, when God brings this era of history to a close, and it's not the end of everything, but it's the end of what he calls the times of the Gentiles. It's the end of the time that is going to culminate in the return of Jesus. At the end of this, the New Testament teaches that God is going to literally take believers out of the earth. Paul talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when he says, don't, don't worry, when Jesus comes, we're going to be caught up and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we're going to be caught up. In another place he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 1 Corinthians 15. And so believers at the moment when Jesus comes, are going to be caught up. And you know what Paul calls this in 2 Thessalonians 2.1? He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. In chapter 4, verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians, he says we'll be caught up in chapter 2, or rather 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He equates the catching up with the gathering together with Jesus. It's an important concept. The church is going to be gathered to Jesus in the air. But that is not what Isaiah is talking about today. 
So if you come to this message and you see the regathering, do not think the regathering of the church. We're talking the regathering of Israel on the earth. The New Testament teaches the church will be gathered to Jesus in the air and will go back to be with him in heaven. But there will be people left behind. And that's what the book of Revelation is devoted to. In fact, after the believing church is caught up, the unbelieving Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and most Gentiles will be left behind. In fact, if only one out of six or only one out of seven people are caught up, the world will go on with lots of people and they'll barely notice that we're missing. And what's going to happen on earth... Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. I was thinking too, you know, you know how when the church is caught up and taken out, we're going to be taken out of time, aren't we? And I was thinking, I wonder if, you know, we'll be up in heaven going, well, we've got seven years now to uh, wait till the tribulation is done. Or maybe it won't be like that at all. Maybe when we're taken out, time will be out of time. Time continues. It's going to be amazing. I mean, do you picture your loved ones up in heaven right now? Like there's a really big clock up there, and they're all going, come on, you know, when, when's this going to be done? When's all my loved ones going to join me? Mm, probably not. Time has no control over God. Do you realize that? And when you experience the presence of the Lord, you're going to be out of, you're going to be apart from time too. Remember God created time when he created the universe. And I know, you know, we got to get logical here and there's got to be some sequence of events and there's got to be some way of understanding the future. I get that. But my point is this, sometimes we get so caught up with the timing of things. You know what Jesus said about this? Talking about what's going to happen on earth right after the church is caught up. He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Matthew 24, 21. Now, he's not talking about the rapture. The rapture is not even spoken of in Matthew 24 and 25. Because he was talking to the Jews, he was talking to his disciples who asked, what's going to happen to Israel? What's going to happen to the temple? And so he said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. There's going to be a time of tribulation like there's never been before. Woe to anyone who waters down the words of Jesus to teach that this was fulfilled in the first century A.D., Paul called it the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 2.2 and warned that no one should be deceived. And by the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, the first century was history. We have evidence of when John wrote Revelation about 95 A.D., long after the uh, temple was destroyed and Israel was scattered in 70 A.D., 25 years later. And he's got this vision of the future. That's the book of Revelation. And so we've got Jeremiah, we've got Jesus, we've got Paul, we've got the Apostle John, all talking about the same thing that Isaiah is talking about here. 
You see? Talking about what's going to happen when Jesus comes. By the way, why is there going to be a tribulation period? Jesus explains it in Matthew 24 and 25. The purpose is twofold. One is to punish the unbelieving Gentiles for their unbelief and for their persecution of what Jesus said, my brethren. And that's why in chapter 25 he separates the sheep from the goats and the sheep enter the kingdom and the goats go off to punishment. The other reason is to regather all living Jews at the time of the land of Israel Right when Jesus returns, there's going to be this massive return of Jewish people to the land. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. So look with me at this text. My message today in a sentence is, just as the believing church will be regathered to Jesus and meet him in the air in his coming, Israel will be regathered on earth and will come to a saving knowledge of Christ during the tribulation period. Have you read the book of Revelation lately? We need to read that book over and over and over. Here's my outline. We got this? The regathering of Israel means retribution against unbelieving Gentile nations. That's what chapter 34 is about. We haven't read it yet. We're going to. And then we read chapter 35, point number two. The regathering of Israel results in their saving faith and kingdom blessing. Remember, it's written in oracle form, poetry. Okay, let's see how we handle this. But uh, it's here. So look with me at chapter 34. And let's think about this first point. The regathering of Israel means retribution against unbelieving Gentile nations. This is what the text says, Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear. And give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Notice verse 8. 
For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Verse 13. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and, and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Now get this, verse 16. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that everything I say right here is going to happen exactly the way I'm saying it. That's what he said. So check out the book, and not one shall be missing. This announcement of of God's retribution. Let's stop and think about this for a minute. Ah. You know, you read the Old Testament, and, you know, I've been a Bible student for... 45 years, and I, I've always struggled with, wow, you know, God told Joshua, she'd go in there and kill them all. No wonder people, you know, who don't read the Bible and don't know what it's about, go, wow, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's harsh and mean and bloody and, and a little bit crazy, but, you know, the God of the New Testament, now he's nice. No, it's the same God, people. It's the same God. He doesn't change. And we've got to, we've got to grasp that. Why would God tell Joshua to go and kill them all? The same reason why God told Noah, Noah, you're the only one left. You, your wife, your three sons and their wives, you're the only ones left. And I'm going to kill them all. And he did. So if he would do that with Noah, why wouldn't he tell Joshua to do that? Why? Because these people were evil. Because they had made a choice to turn and rebel against God. Because they were so wicked and so immoral. You know what one of the most wicked things that they did? They would kill their babies. Hmm. How does that reflect on the 20th century and the 21st century in the United States of America? They were so wicked, the main wicked thing that they did, they would kill their babies. It says something to us about the sanctity of human life, doesn't it? So why does God 
destroy people because he first gives them an opportunity to believe. And that's what Paul wrote in Romans. He said, I created them in my image. I gave them a conscience. And I reflected myself everywhere in creation. So if they would just say, God, where are you? I would say, here I am. But they don't say that. They shake their fist at God and they deny God. They make themselves God and they rebel against him and they worship themselves. And after a little while, God says, okay, that's enough. You follow that? Can you imagine how incredibly horrible, awesome, the great white throne judgment is going to be? Everyone at the great white throne judgment goes to hell, the lake of fire. Everyone. Individually, stand before God. The books are open. Nobody will be going, boy, this is going to take a while. Because time won't be a problem. That means people that you know, people that you work with, people that live near you, are on their way to hell, and the only hope for them is for us to reflect that gospel to them. Are they going to believe? Maybe not. But we want to give them the opportunity to share the gospel, right? That's the main thing. So this is why God says, did you hear what he said here in these first few verses of chapter 34? Draw near, everybody. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to unsheath my sword, and I'm going to bring it down on the nations. The same nations that I said, I'm going to save somebody out of all of them, because I'm going to show my sovereignty and my grace and my mercy. I'm going to offer salvation to all of them, but only those who believe will be saved. Do you notice verse 2? The Lord is enraged against all the nations. He's furious against all their hosts. And he has devoted them to destruction and he's given them over for slaughter. You know what that means? That means the gavel has come down and judgment is done and it cannot be reversed. When God devotes something to destruction, that is the end. You follow that? Does that cause you to quiver? I mean, I'm just shaking all over up here. Do you think I, I enjoy this? I don't. I want to run away. This is the kind of sermon I like. Lord, could I take today off? I was meditating on this passage and trying to think, you know, I was thinking about blood. I'm supposed to be the first one to give on Tuesday. And I remember uh, blood and me are not really that close. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I remember this time I was playing football with my friends. I was a young high school kid, and, and we weren't very bright. Uh, we would play tackle football all out, no equipment whatsoever, up in the park, you know, like two blocks from our house. And man, I loved that. I just loved tackling my friends and seeing who could hit the other one the hardest, you know? And, you know, sometimes you get up and you, you just kind of like, wow. <laughs> one day, I got tackled and we went back in our little huddle. There's probably about eight of us, you know, maybe four or five on a team. And I looked down at my hand and my whole hand and arm is covered in blood. I was like, 
uh-oh, something is wrong. You know, I just love to state the obvious. It drives Diana crazy, you know, but I'm like, you know what, guys, I think I probably better go home. Yeah. So I left a trail of blood for two blocks all the way home, and my friends decided, you know, maybe we better go follow him and see if he makes it. So I got home, I walked in the door, I said, hey, mom, and I just about passed out right there. And then she started tending to my wound. Well, that, uh, that was one of the things that stood out in my mind, that blood is kind of gory, you know? I remember going to, uh, on a hospital call before I was a pastor, I went with my father-in-law, and I do not like hospitals. I I've been in one as a kid, had surgeries, but maybe that's why I didn't like them. But I didn't like that, that weird smell, you know, like everything is like alcohol smelling or something. And I'm with my father-in-law, we're going to visit this lady, and they came to take her blood, and I, t- and I watched them taking her blood, and I was going, oh, <laughs> nobody else was like that, right? Uh, th- this verse about strengthen the feeble knees, I needed that verse, you know, that verse in chapter 35, verse 3. Later on, when I was in high school, I got this job in the grocery store. It was called a, um, a supermarket. Now, if you went in this little store, you would not think it was that super. It was kind of small, but they had the old-fashioned meat room, okay, with real butchers, two of them in there. And man, these guys knew how to cut meat. In fact, they were paid way more than anybody else in the store. I think they only had their own little union or something, maybe. I don't know. I know they were big time uh, in their difference in pay. But as a little peon kid, I was told to go work in the meat room and help the meat guys in there. And a truck would show up. And, you know, this is back in the 70s. I remember uh, the truck would show up, and there would be like a whole side of beef there hanging on a hook. And then they had this machine, they went out and hooked it on there, and they pulled this whole, it looked to me like an entire cow coming through the door. You know, I mean, it was humongous, and it was bloody, and it was, you know, I don't know what they did in the slaughterhouse, but they, they obviously did a lot, but they didn't do everything. So uh, there's blood everywhere. And these, these butchers would have white um, aprons on to begin the day, and guess what color they were at the end of the day? You couldn't see any white. And here I'm back there with them part of the time. They've got this uh, band saw. They could cut your hand off in a moment, you know. They're turning that thing on like, oh, 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 oh I don't want to get near that thing, you know. And, and they're taking these huge hunks of the cow and start cutting it up and sawing it into pieces. And, and I mean, it was amazing to watch. Blood everywhere. And, you, you know, these guys, the skill, man, cutting. They could take a, a cleaver, whack, whack, you know, and they're chopping stuff, and they're making steaks, and they're, they're just going to town. But my job was to clean up the mess. <laughs> oh, yeah, I had an apron on, too. And when I got done, I was all bloody. And I mean, you're carrying out buckets of blood, and I'm not, I'm gonna, I was trying to think, how much should I tell about this, you know? <laughs> we had this weird drain, you know, that was like an overgrown uh, uh, 
incinerator type thing, you know, that you could put stuff down and you didn't want to fall in that thing or you were gone, you know, but it would chop up bones and stuff like that. But, you know, they're cutting bones, they're, they're, doing, they're using saws. Then I'm washing the dishes, so I've got blood up to my, you know, this is the guy that doesn't like blood, right? And later on, in another grocery store, I got called to go in the meat room. And things were a little bit different. This is when I was in seminary, but that weird drain had gotten clogged. And me and another guy had the job of cleaning it out. I'm not going to tell you anymore, but I barely survived that day, I'll tell you that. Why do I tell you that? You notice how often blood is in the Bible? You see what it says in verse 5? For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Now wait a minute, the heavens? Why would a sword be bloody in the heavens? Because that's where Satan and demons are. And that's their part of the judgment that's going on here. And then it says, Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Edom? And upon the people I've devoted to destruction. Notice it mentions Edom. And then down in verse 9, it mentions Edom again. Why does it mention Edom? Well, I ought to have James come up here and uh, reteach Obadiah. Remember that? I mean, James did an awesome job teaching us Obadiah. And I, I remember, I'd never really put that much study or thought into it. Obadiah this one, doesn't even have chapters. It's just a book, not divided. And it's all about how God is going to judge Edom. Well, who's Edom? Well, Edom means red. It's a name, another name for Esau. Who was Esau? Jacob's brother that he tricked out of the birthright. And Esau became the father of this people group that came to be known as Edom. And because they missed the birthright, the land that they got was south of the Dead Sea. Not good. Not nice land. Remember in the Exodus, Moses wanted to bring the children of Israel and come around that way? And what did Edom say? No. You're not coming our way. And stay away from our water. But I'll tell you why Edom is picked out here. Turn over with me to Isaiah 63. Not only was Edom the perennial, the perpetual enemy of Israel, but Edom was guilty of a horrible thing. And if we look at Isaiah 63, verse 1, who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, for there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. 
and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Did you notice this is an oracle? It's not easy to interpret. Well, let's try another one. Ezekiel 25, another book, another prophet, but about the same subject of what did Edom do to bring down the wrath of God so badly? I've got like 10 different passages we could study, but I'm only going to show you this one now. Ezekiel 25, 12, thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah, and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now that's a little bit more straightforward, but both passages are saying God is going to bring vengeance on Edom because Edom persecuted Israel, and not only being a perpetual enemy down through the ages, of course Obadiah would be another passage to turn to, Malachi references this, Ezekiel, another place, Joel 3.19, Amos 1.11 and 12. Edom, 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 Edom. Edom's the enemy of, of Israel. Why? You know why? This is what happened. When the children of Israel were carried away into the Babylonian captivity, some of the Jews were left, and Edom went up there and killed them all. That's why. And God says, I'm going to punish you for that. But lest you think this is only about Edom, and taking you back to Isaiah now, Edom is just representative of all the enemies of the Lord. That he chooses Edom as kind of like the one first in line, but all the other nations that have persecuted Israel are lined up behind them. And he goes on to say back here in Isaiah 34, 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. What does that sound like? If Edom is located, its land was located south of the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is full of what? Minerals like pitch and sulfur, and it burned. In fact, that's how the Dead Sea was formed. You, you realize that, right? You know, there was a body of water, the Jordan River, which now flows into the Dead Sea. But when God destroyed Sodom and, and Gomorrah, he created the Dead Sea. And that's where all those minerals and stuff are. And yes, there is a brook that comes out south of it, but not much water comes out of the Dead Sea. And that's why it's a messy, stanky place. It's a forever reminder that Sodom and Gomorrah was a real event and that Edom is going to be punished. That Edom has kind of been grouped with a lot of other Arab groups, and God is going to bring vengeance on the nations. And that's what really, the, well, that's what this chapter is about. 
The rest of this chapter from verse 8 that I just read, verse 9, down through the end of the chapter, we could reread it again, but basically he's saying uh, this area is going to be uninhabited except by birds and beasts of prey. There's going to be thorns and nettles and brambles and thistles there. There's going to be jackals and ostriches and other wild animals. But he says, seek and read the book. This is going to happen. I'm going to bring my judgment on the nations. And one of the proofs of it, nobody's going to live and eat them anymore. That's what he says. Well, you know, if you just pulled this chapter out of the Bible without the context and without, I've tried to, you know, paint the, how this fits in the whole of Scripture, you know, as far as biblical theology goes, you might not catch that this is about the regathering of Israel and all you would get was, wow, God's going to be really bloody and he's going to kill some enemies, especially Edom. No, this really fits with what Jesus was talking about when he said there's going to come a time of tribulation on the earth. And this is the vision that Jesus gave to John when he said, I want you to write this down, how I'm going to pour out all these series of judgments and it's going to be very bloody. Let's turn over to Revelation for a moment. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. I, I can't escape this, I guess, so I'm going to. Revelation chapter 6. And let's just pick up with verse 9. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now I'm looking at Revelation 6:12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Do you hear that? That's right out of Isaiah 34. We just read it. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now realize chapter 6 is just where all this stuff starts. And you keep reading chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. You get, you know, chapter 14 and 16, the Battle of Armageddon. But let's go to chapter 19. I want you to see this. We can't read the whole book of Revelation, but we can read some of it. And I'll just pick up with um, Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now get this. This is really sad. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And of course it goes on there to talk about the beast and the false prophet, and then you get into chapter 20 about the millennium, and then finally the great white throne. What's my point? What Isaiah is showing in chapter 34 is the destruction that's God going to bring against the nations. But now come back with me to Isaiah 35 and my, my second point and see how the picture shifts from this horrible, bloody uh, judgment against the nations that is also described in Revelation, the what I just read to you. But now notice how the tone changes in 35. And you heard this when we read Scripture, right? I'm looking at Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Here we see, secondly today, the regathering of Israel results in their saving faith. So remember we said there's two reasons for the tribulation. And it's Isaiah 34 and it's Isaiah 35. One reason is to bring judgment on the Gentile nations who persecuted Israel and because of their unbelief. And the other is to regather Israel as a nation. The people who are alive at that time will be brought together and brought to saving faith and brought into the land. You notice how the land is personified here? It's like the, it's like the flowers are singing and the land is singing. It, it kind of reminds me of Isaiah 11 where all the animals are, the wild animals are now tame and they're lying down with little children. Or how about Isaiah 55:12? The trees of the field will clap their hand. The, the trees will be saying, God, you're awesome. God, you're awesome. You know, that's the picture. The inanimate objects, the creation is personified as bringing rejoicing to God. But not only that, and here's the best verses in the whole day. Right here. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. That's for David Conrad when he goes to the hospital to visit people. And then verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You see how the vengeance of God and the salvation of God go hand in hand? It's the same God. 
I don't know about you, but I really have a hard time wrapping my mind around why so many do not believe and why they will be condemned to hell. But that's what the Bible teaches. This is not a popular message. But on the other hand, the good news is, here's the gospel for those who will believe. If you're here today, do you believe it? If you believe it, do you know people who believe it? Do you know people who don't believe it, who need to? Verses 3 and 4 give this wonderful words of comfort. Don't be afraid. God's going to avenge the enemies. He'll take care of it. You don't have to. He's coming to save you. That's what he's telling Israel. That's what he's telling us as a residual promise to us because we are blessed, because Israel is blessed, because the gospel came through Israel and their Messiah to us. You notice in verses 5 through 7, the land will be transformed and the people. Notice verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Does that remind you of anybody? Who? Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. When Jesus came, was the main reason why Jesus came to heal sick people? Was that the main reason? It wasn't. And all you have to do is read the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where he healed sick people all day long, and he's dead tired, and the disciples came and said, hey, you know, you got a whole other crowd out there, needs to be healed. And Jesus said, no. I'm going to go to the next village because they need to hear the message. I didn't come to heal everybody. I came to show you in a foreshadowing way how I'm going to heal everyone in the end time. Those who teach right now that you must have enough faith to be healed, and if you have enough faith, you will be healed, and that's part of your salvation, that is a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. When Jesus came to heal the blind and the deaf and the lame, he came to show what he's going to do with Israel at the end time. It was a foreshadowing. And it proved his power. It gave authority to his words. He gave that authority to the apostles for a limited time. But before they died, they didn't have that power anymore. Why? Because it had been completed. And that goes for all those other spectacular gifts. And so those verses are a picture of what the Lord wants to do with the whole person. He not only wants to heal our nearsightedness, he wants us to be able to see the truth of salvation. He's not talking just about physical uh, vision. He's talking about spiritual vision. The people will be transformed and the land will be transformed. You notice... We got that beautiful phrase, streams in the desert, in the last part of verse 6. And he goes on to say, The burning sand shall become like a pool, thirsty ground springs of water. Where the jackals used to be, that's desert, there will be reeds and rushes. And that means there will be plenty of water. Everything's going to be well watered. The land's going to be beautiful. It's going to prosper. This is what I have for you, Israel. I'm going to bring you and regather you to myself. So when Jesus comes, he's going to catch up the church and take us and meet him in the air. Then he's going to regather Israel on the earth. And by the way, they're the humans who will walk into the kingdom in their mortal bodies and live long lives, some of whom will sin, 
some of whom will die. And that's why the Messiah will have to rule with an iron hand because there will still be some sinners in the kingdom. And just read Revelation 20. At the end of the thousand years, there's a rebellion. <laughs> the children and the children's children and children's children's children of those who entered the kingdom rebel against the Lord. The last few verses, verses 8 through 10, this beautiful picture of the highway. I almost made this uh, sermon title, Highway to Heaven. But it's not the highway to heaven, it's the highway to Jerusalem. So that would have been totally wrong, right? Verse 8 says, and, high, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And he goes on to say, nothing unclean, only believers. Purified are going to go along this highway. And, and even somebody who's really disoriented and doesn't know what they're doing, it'll be so easy because the, the highway is going to be so broad and everyone's going to go. Nobody's going to fall off. There won't be any lions there. There won't be any obstacles. Because verse 10 says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Do you realize how awesome it is to be alive right now? To see that there is a nation of Israel again? You know, for the first oh, 1900 and some years of church history, Israel was scattered all over. But now there's Jewish people back in the land. Are they all there? No. There's more in Fort Lauderdale than there are in Jerusalem right now. I'm telling you that right now. Okay? So, and a bunch of other places. But, uh, but there's coming a time when God is going to bring the Jewish people back to the land. And it's going to be amazing. You will see it because you will be there to rule and reign with Jesus if you know him. Well, here's the summary of what we were saying. Number one, the regathering of Israel means retribution against unbelieving Gentile nations. Got to understand that. God is going to punish people with death. And it's hard to comprehend, but it's true. And secondly, the regathering of Israel results in their saving faith and their kingdom blessing. So what can we take away? This is what uh, my challenge for you today. Number one, we must not confuse God's future plan for the church with God's future plan for Israel. Do you get that? You know when Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of God, you know the main thing he wanted him to get? There's a difference between the Old Testament and the New, and there's a difference between Israel and the church. And if you don't get that, you'll never interpret the Bible correctly. And it's amazing how many Christians are confused. Number two, Israel must return to her land to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. If Israel doesn't return to the land, then God's a liar. But God is not a liar. He always tells the truth, and it's going to happen. Thirdly, although God offers salvation to all the Gentile nations, he will judge their unbelief both corporately and individually. And remember that. God judges nations but he also judges individuals. Every one of us must give account for what we believe about Jesus. 
Number four, the future kingdom of Israel will be glorious because it's going to be Christ's kingdom. And we're going to enter it. And we're going to rule and reign with them in our glorified bodies while they in their mortal bodies. It's going to be awesome. And number five, for now, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is our main message. It's the only path to the future kingdom. So we can talk kingdom all we want, and people talk about kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Well, yeah, kingdom is coming. But the the message right this moment is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. That's my message. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you, Lord, and we, we pray, Lord, that somehow, some way, you would imprint Isaiah on our hearts today that we might understand and apply and live to your glory. And I pray that we would be reflecting the good news of the gospel to everyone that we meet. In Jesus' name, amen.